Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Lewis. I'm the lead pastor here at City Awakening. Uh, welcome to those of you who are here on site and to those of you watching online. We're glad you're joining us online, too. At uh, this time, we go ahead and dismiss our children to Children's Church. And if you didn't get a chance to check your child in, you can see our children's ministry leaders in the back, and they would be more than happy to assist you with that. Now, before we get into today's message, I do want to celebrate a few things regarding Winterfest, which we had yesterday. Um, it was a great event, very successful event, and I want to say special thanks to all of you who participated in that. You know, yeah, you can praise God. Many of you either helped prior to with a lot of planning and preparation, or maybe you helped the day before with setup, or maybe even helped the day of um, with the actual event, and even after the event took place, stuck around and helped us to be able to load things back up again and get everything ready for us to be able to gather here um, this morning. So um, thank you to all of you who, are par- who participated in Winterfest, and I want to say a special thanks um, to Krista Plowfield and to her daughter, Sarah, because the idea started with them. All right, and, and if it wasn't for them coming up with this idea and actually doing a lot of legwork behind the scenes that so many of us aren't even aware of that they were doing, I mean, I was heard that, that Sarah was like a detective to all the different, uh, you know, vendors who were coming in. I mean, literally like screening about a hundred of them just to make sure, okay, you know, can we, can we have them come in? Can this like be a mutual relationship, things like that? I mean, lots of work behind the scenes, okay? And so if it wasn't for them coming up with this idea and actually doing some behind the, the scenes work to help organize it, then, you know, Winterfest wouldn't have become a reality for us. And many of you may not have actually had the invitation to be able to come on board with the Winterfest. And so I want to give a special thanks to the two of them. And we do have a little gift for you. They don't want this. They don't like that acknowledgement. Well, too bad. I'm sorry. We love you. Okay. And we want to acknowledge the hard work they did with the gift um, for the two of you. Yes, I know you don't want it. You're shaking your head at me, Krista. I know it. You don't do it for that. I know that. They do it for the glory of Jesus and out of a love for this church and a love for the people in our city. That's why they do this. But we wanted to say thanks because we know that they were being faithful to the vision that the Lord put on their heart. So that praise isn't going to them. That praise is going to Jesus and the work that he has done in their heart to lead them to step out in faithfulness, to want to serve him, to serve this church, and to serve the very people in our city. Okay, so I'm very thankful for them presenting the idea to us. And I will tell you that when they first presented the idea to our staff, they came to our staff meeting. And I don't think any of our staff, including myself, realized um, just how big this thing was going to get. I mean, it seemed like as the days went on, it kept getting bigger. It kept, Winterfest kept expanding to the point to where I was like, uh-oh. I mean, I got nervous. I'm like, I mean, I, Zach would probably tell I would start to panic a little. I was like, Zach, I, I'm pretty nervous about how we're going to handle all this. Like, this is a lot for our size church, right? The only way that this was going to happen is if God's grace moved in, into the hearts of more people to get more people involved to help us with this, which is exactly what happened, okay? God's grace moved in the hearts of so many people. Many people jumped in and got involved, and because of that, Winterfest became a reality. And here's some things um, just for us to celebrate. We had over 70 volunteers serving at Winterfest. I mean, it was an army of volunteers, okay? 
We had six food trucks and 31 vendors, and our goal was two to three food trucks and 30 vendors. So we beat, we doubled our goal for food trucks, and we beat our goal for vendors by one, which I'll take that. Um, hey, one still wins the game, doesn't it? If you win by one, you still win the game, right? So I'm happy we beat that goal. We raised over $4,000 for people in our city still facing hardships from Hurricane Ian and Nicole. We already have a couple families in mind that we are going to be giving that money to who are, yes, legit, still facing hardships um, from Hurricane Ian. In fact, um, you know, one of the coaches I told you about um, a few weeks ago, he actually showed up at the event yesterday and was showing me his house, which is still, um, he showed me, it's, it's bare bones now. I mean, just completely ripped out everything um, out of his house. So they've already started that process. But yes, these needs are still there and all that money, we're going to be sending them over $4,000. Um, we had close to 600 people attend Winterfest. 400 of them weren't vendors or City Awakening attenders. They were guests, okay? Over 400 of them were guests. Okay, listen, we can do a lot of celebration in church. I ain't got no problem with that, all right? So what this means is this means that over, over um, 400 people received invitations as well to come to our Christmas Eve service because we were given Christmas Eve invites um, to people when they came. Actually, um, we had um, some of our parking team, Tiara was actually, I mean, she had a chair on the sidewalk and was making sure as people came, you know, she was given, and, or as they left, she was giving them invites. We had people all around who were given invites as well to our Christmas Eve service. Now, maybe they come and maybe they don't. But either way, they now know that this church exists and that this is a place that they can come to on Christmas Eve or even in the future. They now know that this is a place where they can feel welcomed instead of shunned. All right, for that, I'm thankful. I'm also um, very, I was very moved and impressed um, by some of the responses that the vendors gave us. I mean, I had numerous team members coming up to me and tell me several things, several stories that the vendors were telling them, things like, man, we have never been a part of an event that, that, that was put together this well. I mean, never, they said, we've never been a part of a, an event that was put together as well as you all put this event together. And I was also, they, they would tell us, multiple people told us, I was also impressed with, with the young students that you had, that you had middle schoolers and high schoolers who were literally out there helping to unload the vendors and then to load them back up again. They said, we don't have anybody coming to help us unload and load. At these events, they just tell me, no, yeah, you're on your own, so do that. So shout out to the student ministry and the students in ministry, um, in our student ministry for the hard work they put in on that. One of the things that really impressed me was that I have spoken with several other people in different places who put on events like this often. And one of the things that they said to me was they said, you know, we start planning events like this about at least six to eight months in advance. We don't know how you all pulled this off so quickly and so efficiently, effectively. And we just don't know how you did it. Because we pulled this off in roughly a two-month time period. Okay, and here's why that excites me. Because it goes to show you our church's capability and potential for what can be accomplished when we pull together towards a missional purpose. And that excites me even more for our future, for when we eventually start to pull together for a church building one day so that we can have a more permanent impact in our city. That day's going to eventually come, and I believe that, and, and this is a glimpse of that. Winterfest was a current glimpse of our future possibilities if we as a church continue to pull together towards missional purposes. And so we don't, want winter, we don't want it to stop with Winterfest. As great as Winterfest is, we don't want it to stop there. We have an opportunity to still pull together yet again as a church when it comes to inviting people to our Christmas Eve service. 
on your seats and at our Next Steps table, you can pick up some more invite cards. But those invite cards, I want you to always remember that those invite cards are more than just print on paper. They're invitations for people to meet our Savior. One of the things we say often here at City Awakening is that it's invitations that lead to transformations. And so let's invite and let's pray for those that we invite. Let's pull together yet again and invite as many people as we possibly can to come to our Christmas Eve service to be able to hear the good news about Jesus on Christmas Eve. So as great as Winterfest was, our work's not done yet. We have two and a half services. I'm going to count this one as a half. Okay, we've got this week, next Sunday, and then Christmas Eve. Okay, let's finish 2023 strong by pulling together and making this Christmas Eve the greatest Christmas Eve in City Awakenings history. Amen? Okay, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen by inviting and by praying for those that we invite. All right? Winterfest was a current glimpse of future possibilities for our church. Now, that being said, today we are going to be continuing a teaching series that we've been doing throughout the year called The Story, where we've been going through the biblical narrative from the very beginning in Genesis 1 to the last amen in Revelation 22. And we have three messages left in this series, which brings us to the final book in our biblical narrative, which is the book of Revelation. To which some of you are like, bum, 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 right? You know, right? Why? Some of you are like, man, this is an odd book to be in during the Christmas season. You're right. It is. Okay? The book of Revelation is a very odd yet an interesting book for us to be in during the Christmas season. Why is it odd and interesting? Well, because the Christmas season is all about celebrating the incarnational birth of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, but the book of Revelation focuses on the end times and the second coming of Jesus. So yeah, it does make for a very interesting and odd Christmas series. But my hope is that we will come to better appreciate the first coming of Jesus the more we study and learn about the second coming of Jesus. My hope is that we will come to realize that the book of Revelation is about so much more than the end times. It is about a great hope that we can have, that all of us here can have, in the second coming of Jesus. So let me ask you, did you walk in here today needing hope? Do you need hope in your life? Are you facing hardships, facing struggles, facing, facing afflictions in your life right now? Are you worried about your future, concerned about your future, as you live in a world, in our current world, that is just full of so much uncertainty? There's very little that's certain in our world right now. Are you needing hope? You want to know the answer to that is? Yes. Why? Because everybody needs hope in their life. Okay? Everybody needs hope in their life at some point in their life. Well, the book of Revelation can point us to that hope, and I want you to see that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn them over to Revelation chapter 1. We'll have the words on the screen for you as well. It's easy to find the book of Revelation if you're new to your Bible. You just go to the last quarter part of your Bible, very last book of the Bible. You'll find it there. Okay? We'll be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. And for those of you taking notes, this is the title of the message, the first and the last. The first and the last, and this is the big idea of the message. A day will come when Jesus will prove he's greater than your greatest afflictions. A day will come when Jesus will prove he's greater 
than your greatest afflictions. That'll make sense as we go. All right, let me give you a little bit of context here. Um, first of all, a little disclaimer. I know some of you get really excited over the book of Revelation. Now, I know some of you are like, ooh, he's going to talk about Revelation today. Man, I hope he's going to get into, like, some of the symbolisms, you know, the beast, the dragon. It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings story, you know, or like Wizard of Oz, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. You know, I hope he gets into that and breaks all the symbolism down so that a better understanding, especially when you get to the end times of things. I hate to disappoint you, but unfortunately, I'm not going to get into all that. I don't have the time to with only three messages. I can tell you this, that eventually we will do an entire series on the book of Revelation that is a stirring that's been on my heart. Our staff has even talked about it a few times. And so that will eventually come one day. When? Don't know. We'll see when the Lord puts that prompting on our heart to teach it. So for now, this is going to be our focus. Our focus over these next three messages is going to be for us to be able to see an often neglected theme in the book of Revelation, which is that we can find great hope in Jesus and his second coming. See, that theme often gets neglected because people can become, you know, obsessed with some of the end times stuff that's being described or some of the descriptions and symbolisms that are being given in there. And so our focus, though, is going to be on that major theme of the second coming of Jesus and the hope we can have in that. John, who is the author of this, the Apostle John, he gives us the theme. He gives us what the big idea of the book of Revelation is about. He gives us a thesis statement in Revelation 1 verse 1 saying this, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay, in the original Greek language this is written in, the word revelation there can also be translated as unveiled. It means to unveil something, it means to reveal something. Well, John tells us what this book is about, what he's unveiling, what he's revealing. He's telling us it's about two things. He is unveiling, revealing something about Jesus and something about the things that must soon take place, all right? That's the thesis statement he gives us right in chapter 1, verse 1. So let's see some of the things that he's talking about revealing. Revelation chapter 1, verses 8 to 18 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That's a revelation and unveiling about, about Jesus. Jesus saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, which is an incredibly powerful statement. And, and it's something that can actually give us a lot of hope for our afflictions today. And so I'll come back to it later. I'll explain what Jesus is meaning by this later. Again, verse 9, or verse nine says, um, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction. What's he talking about when he says the affliction? The affliction that John is talking about here are the afflictions that Christians were experiencing around the first, in, the, in the first century. It was brutal afflictions that they were experiencing in the first century during the time when John is writing this. So contextually, we've got to picture that. We've got to picture this is around the first century during a time when Christians are facing some brutal afflictions, some brutal persecutions. Notice that John says, I'm a partner in these afflictions, meaning he's experiencing these same afflictions too. At the time that he's writing this, all the other apostolic leaders have been martyred. They've all been killed. John is the last apostolic leader at this time. He is the last of the original 12 disciples, the original 12 followers of Jesus. He hasn't been killed yet. He hasn't been martyred yet. But he's still faced, he's a partner in the affliction. He's still faced afflictions, still faced persecution, still faced suffering. He was still 
had the Romans pouring uh, boiling oil over all of his body to burn his skins. They even put him into exile on an island called Patmos, which would be you know, equivalent to our Alcatraz. Historically, we know that Nero was one of the first Roman emperors to start persecuting Christians. We also know that towards the end of the first century, the Roman emperor Domitian comes into power, and he unleashed even worse persecution. Why? Because he demanded that Christians worship him as Lord, and Christians refused to do that. And so he increased their persecution. During this time, it was extremely brutal for Christians. They, they would literally impale Christians. They would rip their arms and their legs off with using horses. They would tie ropes to their arms and their legs and then have the horses run in a separate direction, directions, ripping off their arms and their legs. They would drill holes in their skulls and then pour molten lead inside the holes in their heads. They even would burn Christians alive, using them as street lights to light up their city at night. It was extremely brutal afflictions and persecution that they were facing during this time. And I hate being graphic, but this is exactly the current and future afflictions that John is talking about here in this text. It is a historical fact that Christians faced brutal persecution and afflictions in the first century. Yet it is also a historical fact that Christianity still survived despite these persecutions and afflictions. Why? It's because these first century Christians refused to stop worshiping Jesus as Lord. See, if you're a skeptic, you've got to ask yourself a question. Would you have done that? Would you have been willing to go through that much brutal affliction for a lie? If Jesus really wasn't Lord, if they really didn't believe and see that he had lived, died, and rose again for their sins, if none of that stuff's true, would you really be willing to go through all that pain and suffering for a lie? The reality is none of us would. But see, they... they saw some things here. They saw the, apostle, the, the apostolic leaders. They were learning from them, listening from them, you know, seeing the Lord move in some of these ways that it caused them to say, no way. I will not deny Jesus. I will not deny worshiping him as Lord. They would rather suffer and die than deny their faith in Jesus and stop worshiping Jesus as Lord. John writes Revelation to give these first century Christians some things to learn about Jesus that can give them hope in their current and future afflictions. There's some things that can help to give us hope in our current and future afflictions as well. The reality is, is we are not facing afflictions like they did back then. Our afflictions look different. But the truth is, we're still facing afflictions. Many of us in this room are facing afflictions. What are those afflictions for you? What afflictions are you facing in your life right now? Today, currently. Are you facing maybe some physical health issues or some mental health issues that are making it very hard for you to wake up in the morning to face the day? Are you facing some marital, parental family, relationship issues that leave you feeling defeated and discouraged by the end of the day? Are you facing issues in school, 
facing issues with your career, facing issues with addictions and sins that you, you can't seem to shake. What afflictions are you facing in your life right now? Everybody faces afflictions in their life. Both skeptics and believers are going to have moments in their life where they're going to face afflictions. John is writing this book for you as well. He's writing this book to give us hope in our afflictions. Again, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I was giving, I was telling people about Jesus. I was sharing my testimony with them about Jesus and the Romans tortured and persecuted me and they threw me in exile on, on Patmos. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around the chest, his chest. The hair of his head was white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of a cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like a sun at full strength. This is part of the unveiling, part of the revealing that John was talking about earlier about Jesus. He's saying, while I was on the island of Patmos and experiencing these brutal afflictions, Jesus appeared to me in such a magnificent way in this time of affliction. And then he gives all these descriptions about Jesus and what he's doing in these descriptions. He's given us a glimpse as to some of the things that he saw in Jesus revealed. And, and each of these descriptions have symbolic implications. So they're not meant to be taken literal, but they have symbolic implications for us. He describes Jesus, he describes that, you know, his hair as, as white as snow, symbol, symbolically saying that Jesus is infinite in wisdom. Because back then, whenever they would you know, talk about somebody's hair being white, he's talking about you know, somebody in their older age with wisdom. You know how old, over time you gain more wisdom with, with age. He's not saying that Jesus is old. He's just sim simply giving that symbolism that they would have understood back then, that, that Jesus has infinite wisdom. When he says that his, he describes his eyes as fiery flames, he's saying that Jesus has infinite insight, able to to see into the depths of our soul. When he says that Jesus' feet were like bronze, he's saying that Jesus is infinite in his strength. When he describes Jesus' voice like cascading waters, symbolically he's saying that Jesus has powerful words that have infinite eternal implications for our lives. When he says that Jesus' face is as bright as the sun, Symbolically, he's saying that Jesus is infinite in radiance and glory. Simply put, John is giving us an exalted, glorious view of Jesus. He's saying that on the island of Patmos, during this great time of affliction, Jesus appeared to me in such a great, glorious, exalted view that it caused me to realize that he's greater than our greatest afflictions. Jesus is greater than, than our greatest afflictions. He says, Jesus was so great in this moment when I saw him 
that it caused me to collapse. It caused me to fall at his feet. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He's saying in that moment when I saw Jesus, he was so great. He was so glorious. He was so powerful that I fell at his feet. His legs became weak. He, they started to buckle. He started to, be, started to, to tremble. Any of y'all ever, ever you know, had become so scared that you started to tremble? You kind of felt, felt your body maybe go numb. You felt your legs maybe, maybe get a little weak and queasy out of fear. I do every time I see a spider. Okay, we were at Winterfest and I ran into a cobweb, man. I started you know, getting scared. Some of y'all know that's my fear. I know somebody in this church who has a fear of frogs. Anytime they see a frog, they get terrified. Okay? There are moments, maybe you walk in a dark alley or, or you had something happen to you and you just felt yourself freeze up. You know, sometimes that happens to people. Fight, flight, freeze, run, whatever it is, right? But in this moment, John sees Jesus with such great power, with such great glory that his legs begin to buckle, becomes weak. And he starts to fall at Jesus' feet, collapsing like a dead man collapsing to the ground. This is the first time that John is seeing Jesus after Jesus has resurrected and ascended into heaven. And we know that John was considered to be one of the apostles, one of the people that, that had a close relationship with Jesus. In fact, he's often referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. In the original Greek language, that translates as the one who Jesus kept on loving. In other words, he kept on loving, loving um, John, even though John had faults, even though John had failures. He still kept, he never stopped loving John. And so this is somebody who had an extremely close relationship with Jesus. And so why in the world is he all of a sudden trembling at the feet of Jesus? Why does that happen? I mean, this is the exact same Jesus that he was close friends with when, Jesus, when he was walking with Jesus here on earth. And now all of a sudden he's trembling in his presence. The reason this happens is because when Jesus was living here on earth, he was concealing part of his power and glory because people wouldn't have been able to handle it. They wouldn't have been able to handle the fullness of his power and glory in their presence. But in this moment, Jesus is releasing a glimpse, a little bit more of his power and glory. Not in the fullness, but revealing some of his power and glory to John in this moment. To the point to where it's so great that John collapses. Even with this extra glimpse, he collapses at the feet of Jesus. It's because John is seeing a greater power and glory than what he's ever seen in Jesus before. And in this moment, Jesus is saying to me, saying, hey, John, I know the afflictions that you're going through and that so many other people are going through. I came to warn you that greater afflictions are coming. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I also came to give you hope in, in me, to be able to see in me. I came to give you hope by showing to you just this extra glimpse of my glory and power in a way that you haven't seen before because I want you to have hope in knowing that, that my power is greater than your greatest afflictions in life. I want you to see that and I want you to share this with the world. I want you to share that great afflictions are coming to the world, but I also want you to give great hope and that my power is greater than these greatest afflictions and that a day will come and a time will come when I return in the second coming, 
and I will obliterate all afflictions forever. John is writing this revelation to share that vision that he had with us, and it is a vision that ends up turning his heart from, from pain to praise, from fear to tremendous faith. Okay? He is giving us and giving some of these first century Christians some hope in the middle of our afflictions. Okay? So what are some of the afflictions that you are going through in life? What are some of the pains? John is saying, yeah, man, it's hard, and I know it, and I'm a partner in some of these afflictions. But I saw something that was so magnificent and so great that it caused me to fall at Jesus' feet in a way I'd never done that before. He is coming back, and he's coming back in such great power and glory. He will obliterate our afflictions forever. That's what John is pointing us to. Again, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, which is exactly what he says in verse 8. See, in verse 8, he says that, that I'm the alpha and the omega, right? Which means in, in the Greek alphabet, the very first letter is alpha. The last letter is omega. So what Jesus is saying is, is I'm, I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and last. last. But, but what does he mean by that? What is he actually saying? And how can that give us hope for our current or even future afflictions? How can that give us hope? Well, it means three primary things. Three primary things Jesus is saying here. Number one, Jesus is in the beginning of history. It means Jesus is in the beginning of history. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the first, meaning he's saying that he existed at the beginning of history, before history even started. And see, a lot of people want to be admirers of Jesus. They want to say, you know, Jesus, you know, I, I really like him, you know, I respect, you know, I don't have problems so much with, with Jesus. I have more of a problem with, with his followers. I have more problem with Christians. Okay, but the problem is, is though, is, is when Jesus says things like this, He's either telling the truth, or he's crazy, or he's lying. But it can't be all three. He's either crazy, or he's he's lying, or he's telling the truth. Because you don't say things like that. I mean, if I were to stand up here and to say to you right now, say, hey guys, by the way, I'm the alpha and the omega of history. Hey, I was here before everything else existed, I'm the one who started it all. You guys would be like, that guy's crazy. I ain't going to him. I'm going to go to another church, right? Yeah, how many of us are fans of Jesus and the things that he... Listen, Jesus does not talk like he's crazy. He doesn't talk like he's a liar either, which leaves us with the reality that what he's telling us is the truth. He's saying, I'm the alpha. I'm the first. I'm the one who existed before the beginning of history. He's the God who eternally existed before history and who set it all in motion. Colossians 1 says, Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. By him, all things hold together. Jesus is the alpha of history. The one who started it all. The one who set it all in motion. He's the alpha of creation, not the beta of creation. He's the alpha, we're the beta, which means we can't ever really truly know who we are without him. 
It goes alpha, then beta. The beta doesn't exist without the alpha. He's the alpha, we're the beta, which means we can't ever really truly fully know who we are without knowing who he is and having a relationship with him. The more we align our hearts with him as our alpha, the less lost we're going to feel in life and the more we're going to start to enjoy our life. Why? Well, because we are aligning our hearts with the very one who created us. Now, this happens to both skeptics and believers. We wander this world sometimes lost in our day-to-day lives, sometimes feeling like we don't have joy, that, that life doesn't feel joyful. Well, sometimes that's because we're, we are putting our eyes on a beta. We're putting our hope and our joy in something else that's a created thing in this world that is not the alpha, it's the beta. And as long as we do that, we are aligning our hearts with a created thing that has an expiration date on it, and that joy isn't going to last forever. It's going to eventually fail. The more we align our hearts with Jesus as our alpha, the less loss we're going to feel in life and the more joy we're going to experience life because we are aligning our hearts with the very one who created us. In the words of St. Augustine, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Jesus is the alpha. He is the God who eternally existed in the beginning of history. He's the one who created us and he's saying we need to align our hearts with him as the alpha. Number two, Jesus is in the end of history. Okay, Jesus is in the end. He's not just in the beginning of history. He's also in the end of history. He says that, that I'm the, the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. What he means by that is that he's not only the one who started things as we know. He's not only the one who started history. He's also the one who's going to be at the end of history making sure that things end according to his desired plan and purposes. He's going to be the final judge that we are all going to have to stand before, and he's going to get the final word in history because he's the omega of history, which leads to number three. Jesus is in the middle of history. Jesus is in the middle of history. So so if Jesus is in the beginning of history, again, these are Jesus' words, not mine. Okay, if he's in the beginning, if he's in the beginning of history, if he's If he's also going to be there in the end of history, then it means he's certainly also working in the middle of history. Jesus is telling John, these first century Christians, and all of us, that he is not just the Alpha and the Omega, but he's also working in the middle of history, which includes our current afflictions. Jesus gives John this revelation. He reveals himself to John in such a magnificent, great, and powerful way to where it causes John to fall and collapse at Jesus' feet in his presence. Jesus is saying to John, John, I am way more powerful than you ever even realized. You thought my resurrection was powerful? I'm way more powerful than you ever even realized than what I've ever even revealed to you. I know that you and so many people are going through afflictions, but I'm coming to you to reveal myself to you in a different way, to give you great hope and to let you know that that I'm going to make sure things end well for you and for all who put their faith and trust in me. Why? Because I am the Alpha, the Omega, and everything in between. Author Paul Tripp, he says, Your world isn't a world of constant chaos controlled by impersonal forces. Your final destiny isn't in your hands or in the hands of other people. If you're a child of the King of Kings, then you're a part of his plan, which means the exercise of his power and authority is for your blessing. We can press on, when little around us makes sense. We can press on 
Because we can know that Jesus is still working out his plan in the middle of history, which includes a triumphant victory over all of our afflictions in his second coming. Now, I know that that it's really hard for us to see that in the moment while we're living in the middle of history. I know it. And I know so many of your stories right now, okay? I know some of the hardships. I know that there's days when I'm facing hardships and afflictions. I told you I'd never want to be the kind of pastor who's going to stand up here and act like my life is pretty and perfect and everything's all great and, you know, let me put on a fake happy Christian face. As every... No, sometimes life is hard. And I could tell you right now, and I mean, Zach will tell you, our staff will tell you, Alex will tell you, I mean, Kristen will tell you, there are so many people right now in our own church who are facing affliction. I told Zach just the other day that, that I feel like we are seeing more people facing afflictions all at once right now compared to any other time in City Awakenings history as a church. It's not that all of that combined, you know, is, is greater than all the afflictions that we, I'm talking about all at one moment. There are so many people facing afflictions. And I know even in my own life that when I'm in the middle of afflictions, when I'm in that moment, it can be really hard for me to see how Jesus is working in that moment. I know sometimes it feels like he's absent or that he doesn't even care. But we cannot claim that Jesus does not care in the moment of our afflictions. Our afflictions can't mean that he doesn't care. Why? Because if he didn't care, then he wouldn't have died for us on the cross and he wouldn't have told John to share this revelation of hope with us. If he didn't care about you, if he didn't care about me, then why would he go to the cross? Why would he tell John, I want you to share this with others? No, he loves us and he cares about us. He loves you and he cares about you, which is why he went to the cross for you, to die for your sins on the cross, and which is why he tells John to share this revelation with us. It's because he wants to warn us that, yes, afflictions are coming. And yes, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But he also wants to give us a great hope in knowing that he's the one who's going to get the final word in history, And he's working out his plan in the middle of all that, even in the middle of our afflictions, to make sure he also gets the final word over your afflictions. It is this exact revelation and hope that allowed these first century Christians, including John, to be able to keep their faith and continue to worship Jesus despite the brutal afflictions they were facing back then. You do not write the things that John writes about the love of Jesus when you're facing such brutal afflictions like this, if it's not true. Okay, you don't write the kind of things that John writes. John is known for writing more about the love of Jesus, the love of God, than any other biblical author. He writes more than any other biblical author, than all the other apostles, even, even the apostle Paul. He writes more about the love of Jesus, the love of God, than any other biblical author, despite facing such persecutions. He writes things like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have eternal life. 1 John chapter 4, verses 8-9, to God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement of our sins. John writes all this and more about God's love. He writes more about God's love than any other biblical author in history. And you don't do that facing the kind of brutal afflictions that he was facing, unless it's true.
John saw Jesus live, die, rise again on the third day, ascend into heaven, and then come back in Revelation 1 to reveal himself in such a magnificent way that it caused John to turn his, pra- his pain into praise, his fear into tremendous faith. And he writes Revelation to, yes, warn us about the great afflictions that are coming, that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but also to give Christians back then and even us today great hope in knowing that Jesus is the one who's going to get the last word in history. He's going to get the last word over our afflictions. So the big idea is this. Jesus, there will come a day when Jesus will prove that his power is greater than your greatest afflictions. Okay, that day will come. A day will come when Jesus will prove that his power is greater than your powers, than, than your greatest afflictions. But that is a promise that is only available for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it's, it's not because I'm trying to be mean or harsh on that, but think about it even logically. Okay, it's because if you are not putting your faith in Jesus, then it means you're putting your faith in something else, and that something else is a beta. Okay, I'm not trying to be harsh when I say that that's a promise only available. It's logic. If Jesus truly is who he says he is, if he truly is the Alpha, then you put your faith and trust in something else, then that something else is a, is a beta. And it isn't the Alpha, it's the beta, which means that it can give you maybe some relief for your afflictions for a little while, but eventually it's going to fail you because it isn't the Alpha, it's a beta. And so what we need, all of us, both skeptics and believers alike, what we need is an alpha, not a beta, over our afflictions. What we need is an alpha who can walk with us in our afflictions, who's greater than our afflictions, but we also need an omega who will one day put an end to all our afflictions. So what all of us need is to put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Alpha who can walk with us in our afflictions, but also as our Omega who will one day put an end to all of our afflictions. What we all need is is the kind of faith that John and these first century Christians had. You think John and these first century Christians weren't saying what you and I say, weren't praying what you and I pray? Jesus, would you just take away all our afflictions right now because I'm hurting and I'm tired. Sure they were. I mean, they were human just like us. So yeah, man, they said that same thing. They would have loved for Jesus to take away all their afflictions just like us. But Jesus is saying, it's not yet. Okay, it's not the time yet. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I promise, a time will come when I will prove that my power is greater than your greatest afflictions in my second coming. Right now, it's hard because you're living in between the first the second coming. See, in the first coming of Jesus, Jesus came as a little baby born in a manger, concealing some of his great power and glory as an adult to reveal his great love for us by dying for our sins on the cross. In his first coming, he concealed his great power to reveal his great love. But in his second coming, it'll be the great love that he revealed that'll compel him to release the fullness of his power and glory, to declare a triumphant victory over all our afflictions. In his second 
coming, he is going to release the fullness of his power and glory to declare a triumphant victory over Satan, sin, and all our afflictions, never to return again. This is the hope that John is saying we need to cling our lives to because if we don't cling our lives to Jesus as our Alpha, then we're going to claim our lives to a beta and that beta is going to eventually fail us. It's going to eventually let us down. He's saying cling to Jesus as your Alpha, as if your life depends on it because it does. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the one who was there in the beginning of history. He's the one who's going to be there at the end of history. And he's the one who is currently working in the middle of history, including in the middle of your afflictions. John is saying, cling to him. Even though it doesn't make sense to us right now. Even though it doesn't make sense to us in this moment where, Jesus, what are you doing? How are you working in my life? And it's even harder for you to make sense of it the deeper your affliction is that you're going through right now. But a day will come when those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will see that Jesus proves greater than your greatest afflictions. Until then, let's pray and let's cling to him. Jesus, I confess that there are days and moments where I am clinging to a beta. I'm claiming to something else in creation. But history has proven time and time again, Lord, that whatever I cling to has an expiration date. Whatever I'm clinging to for joy, whatever I'm clinging to to give me hope is eventually going to run out. Career, work, money, health, We can't keep clinging to betas. They will fail us. Jesus, we need to cling to you as our alpha. I pray for people in here right now who are going through deep, tremendous afflictions that Jesus, they would realize that this isn't me speaking to their hearts and their souls right now. I can't know what they're going through six six months in advance, which is when you put these messages on my heart and our team's hearts. There's no way I could have known what people are going through in this moment, but Jesus, you knew. And so you declared that this day is a moment when you will will have us preach and teach on this scripture. Jesus, help people to receive this good news that you are their alpha, that you are their omega, that you're the first and the last, that you were there in the beginning of history. You'll still be standing at the end of history. And that you're continuing to to work in the middle of our, our afflictions, in the middle of this history. Jesus, help us to cling to you as if our lives depend on it because it does. We thank you for the great revelation and hope that you've given to John. And that John would write it down and would be preserved for hundreds of years throughout history so that we can receive that good news here today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for not abandoning us. We thank you for loving and dying for our sins on the cross. We thank you for giving us great hope in the midst of our afflictions. Help us to internalize that in a way that transforms our hearts. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.